Thanks Liam and leave your Bibles open there and it is good to see all who are new to Wollongong or new to St Michael's come down for uni or work. Uh, thanks for coming along and joining us. There's a sermon outline we include each week and I can tell you that the uh, introduction point there is rubbish. I rewrote it this morning. So, But the rest of the sermon outline is pretty much okay. Let's, let's pray that uh, God will help us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, the Bible. I personally thank you for the wrestle I've had uh, trying to grasp and work out what to say about this passage during the week. And now we ask that what has been prepared would do some good for us all, that you'd help us know how to think and how to live for Jesus' sake. Amen. Unless you're new to St Michael's, you will know that here every week at church we have a second Bible reading apart from the sermon passage just to expose you to another part of Scripture. And over recent months it's been from Exodus beginning with the Ten Commands in chapter 20 and then taking small sections of the law of Moses week by week. The case law, that's the detailed application of the principles of the Ten Commands. That's the various ancient situations in Israel. As you'd also know, we invite people to give feedback on the connection cards every week. And nothing has caused greater comment than people saying these Exodus readings from the Law of Moses seem odd and out of context. In my 12 years here, as we read all manner of familiar and more obscure parts of Scripture, I've never had as many comments as about reading this Law of Moses. None of them have come from visitors. All of them have come from regular committed Christians sometimes worried about what guests or, or people new to church might be thinking. I encourage pastoral staff always to look for the grain of truth in any critique. And so once or twice, regulars may have noticed, like Liam did tonight, I've given a word of context or explanation introducing these readings from Exodus. But still the feedback comes. So let me be honest. I'm irritated. Now don't worry, I haven't kept a list of who writes what on the comment cards. In fact, I love those who comment, especially those who sign their name. That's how we can improve. But it raises the question, well, what's the relevance of the Mosaic law? In Matthew 5 and verse 17, you heard it read, Jesus makes this decisive comment, do not think I've come to abolish the law. Clearly he had to say that because some thought he was messing with God's Old Testament ways. And he said he wasn't, not a bit of it. And so that's why I'm irritated. It began last year with one of the very first weeks when someone did their reading from Exodus 21 and apologised for it. They said, this reading's a bit weird. Relax, I've forgotten who said it. And it actually seems many people agreed with you. So don't take this personally. But I wanted to reply, how dare you say God's word is weird? Don't we Christians believe that all scripture is inspired by God and full of authority for our lives today? That's what Jesus believes. 
He's not abolished it. If there's something strange about it, maybe it's we who have the problem. Maybe we're the ones who need to get our thinking straightened out. And actually, that's what I hope this section of the Sermon on the Mount will help us do tonight. So, if Jesus is not abolishing the law, what's its relevance? You know, does, it, does that mean we've still got to obey at all? You know, even, even, even the bits like the ban on eating shellfish and polyester cotton blend shirts, surely you can't just be picking and choosing it. Well, rather than obsess over what we must do, let's look at what Jesus has done with the law. Because verses 17 and 18 talk about what Jesus did with the law when he came. Let's read it again. Matthew 5 from verse 17. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything's accomplished. Quite clearly, speaks of the continuing relevance of the law of God, even the small details. That's right. But it also speaks of what Jesus was doing with that law. And the answer was not abolition, but fulfilment. Jesus is not dismantling the law. There's no slackening of moral standards, no changing of God's plans. Instead, they need fulfilment. Now, what does fulfilment mean? To fulfil is to complete, to meet the purpose. So, you fulfil the requirements of a medical degree by passing all the exams and the practice. But in a deeper way, you fulfil the purpose of a med degree by going on to work as a doctor. Medical studies have requirements and a goal to fulfil and they go together. So, how does Jesus fulfil the law? He doesn't actually explain in any detail here, but as I read the whole New Testament, I think we can say he fulfils the law both ways. Jesus meets the law's requirements, not us, and Jesus meets the law's goal for us. Jesus meets the law's requirements by always obeying it. He never used his power for selfish purposes, only for the good of others and to honour his Father. Unlike us, he always loved God with everything he had and loved his neighbour as himself. He, he kept the law. By contrast, the law shows our need as we failed to meet those requirements. We deserve to die, it says. But of course, the law and the prophets also point to God's goal, God's purpose, even in this sad reality. So God's law provided a symbolic means, a hope of forgiveness through the animal sacrifice system. Sin deserves death, but God accepts an unblemished animal to substitute in our place. And Jesus fulfilled that symbol, that hope, with his perfect human sacrifice on the cross. So verse 18 says, everything in the law is to be accomplished. And that's what Jesus did through his earthly ministry. Jesus fulfilled all Old Testament patterns. He was the perfect prophet, priest, king and wise man. And when Jesus fulfills a pattern, like offering the perfect sacrifice, well, we don't need to try and offer another one to somehow repeat it or improve it or, or do something similar. 
We just need to trust the one he offered. Likewise, the ritual laws about cleanliness are fulfilled by the ultimate cleansing Jesus offers us in his death, which deals with the internal matters and not just surface appearances. That's why Matthew 15 records that Jesus declared all foods clean. The Old Testament food laws about what was clean or not, they're not abolished but they no longer apply the same way because they've done their job of pointing to Jesus who's fulfilled their intent. We honour that law by honouring the Jesus who fulfilled it and cleansed us and we can eat prawns. And I'm the only one in my family who likes them. But friends, it's not as if God changed his mind about morality. This is not a slackness thing. Because now Jesus calls for a better righteousness. Look next, the next words he says, Matthew 5 verse 19. Therefore anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, verse 20, I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you'll certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. It's a call for outstanding Christian living. Uh, Remember, verses 1 and 2 show the Sermon on the Mount is addressed to those who are already disciples. And actually, it's a key, this verse is a key to the whole sermon. And it's saying we've got to be better than others. That should shock you really because many of you are well taught theologically and you know we're saved by grace, not works. Forgiven through Christ alone, not by our good deeds. So what on earth did Jesus mean by this? That you'll you'll only enter salvation if you're really, really, really good? Just last week I said from the Beatitudes, the blessings of mercy and peace, they're promised to the humble to the poor in spirit, not the spiritual achievers. So we better look at this Pharisaic righteousness we've got to beat. There's actually two groups mentioned in verse 20, the teachers of the law, also known as the scribes who were the professional law students, not the secular law, not lawyers, but the religious academics. And then the Pharisees were a spiritual movement of purity and diligence in law keeping. And they were known for serious religious effort. And these groups could spell out the precise details of what they thought was needed to be done to say you'd kept the law. Classic example you read in the Gospels is working on the Sabbath, our background reading tonight. The the scribes, the Pharisees detailed which activities fell into the forbidden work category. Now back in 2010-11, the summer holidays... I was privileged, uh, parents took us on a holiday to America and we were in part of LA uh, with a high population of observant Jewish people. And on the Saturday, I noticed they, they refused to drive to synagogue because they defined that as working. And so they were only allowed to walk to the synagogue, which meant they had to live pretty close. But the really interesting thing was that they couldn't, when they got to the pedestrian lights, the crossing, they couldn't even press the button because that was also, that would be working, lifting. 
pretty strict, eh? So they sort of would walk you know, a different route to avoid the, the traffic lights or they just had to wait there to hope someone else come along and press it for them. It seems so strict and, and, and committed but not actually the way Jesus saw it. Later in Matthew 23, Jesus denounced the scribes and the Pharisees as moral show-offs and hypocrites. And in chapter 23, verse 28, he explicitly mentions their righteousness. Maybe you can just listen or or look it up as uh, I, I see it in context. Matthew 23 from verse 25. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they're full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee first clean the inside of the cup and dish and then the outside also will be clean. Woe to you teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites, you're like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of the bones of the dead and everything unclean. In the same way on the outside you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside you're full of hypocrisy and wickedness. So, the righteousness of the Pharisees, I think, is about external appearances. Looking impressive, seeming to do, even trying hard to do the right things with the right people at the right places. Tithing, not just your major income crops, your wheat, but even the herbs from your little veggie patch. I mean, who could keep track of such things? What precise attention to your spiritual obligations as to give 10% even of your mint and dill and cumin. Looks impressive, says Jesus, but not while you neglect weighty matters like justice and mercy. A doctor in another parish I served once told me just how much he gave to the church down to the last 43 cents. And the amount was much larger than most other attenders. He also told me he wouldn't go another cent higher because 43 cents took him to exactly 10% of his salary. Maybe the righteousness of a Pharisee? And so when Jesus speaks of surpassing this righteousness, I don't think he means you've got to move your performance from you know, a conceded pass to a, a religious credit or distinction level. Oh, he prays 15 minutes a day, I better pray 20 It's not greater attention to the rules and regs. It's not quantitatively different, but qualitatively different. It's by seeing where the law points. And above all, next sub-point on your outline, it's about seeking Jesus because he's the one who fulfilled the law. So we're not trying to beat the Pharisees at their own game. It's a different game altogether. Not external appearances, but internal transformation by trusting Jesus. Last week, we saw Jesus urge his followers, verse 6, did you see it last week? To hunger and thirst for righteousness. Hungering and thirsting, presumably, because they didn't have it that much. Verse 10, to be willing to be persecuted for righteousness' sake. And then when he applied that verse to his followers in verse 11, he said it meant you would be persecuted for Jesus' sake. Seeking righteousness is tied up with seeking Jesus. 
which is confirmed later in the Sermon on the Mount, chapter 6, verse 33, that Jesus has been speaking of the things that stress us out, uh, you know, like food and fashion, and he says, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Seeking God's righteousness goes with seeking God's rule. As we see all through Matthew, Jesus himself is the ruler of God's kingdom. And so seeking God's rule means seeking King Jesus, turning to Jesus in repentance from sin, trusting his perfect law-keeping sacrifice for mercy and forgiveness. And when we look at Jesus, we don't see someone unconcerned about goodness. In regards to morality, he sets a perfect example for us to imitate. And Jesus changes your heart. When you repent, you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. In fact, that's one of the great things the law and the prophets looked forward to. One example, take Jeremiah 31 verse 33, where the prophet was speaking of a new covenant, a forgiveness of sins and a direct personal knowledge of God. Quote, This is the covenant I'll make with the house of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I'll put my law on their minds and write it on their hearts. Not on the surface. Jesus puts the law on our heart. And so following Jesus transforms us. His forgiveness changes us. And so the law remains true and we can learn from its commands, but we don't do it the same way we used to. We're not under the legal penalty. We're free from the punishment. But our freedom is not disregard, but a glad desire to do righteousness from the heart, to follow Christ's law of love. Not, not just to avoid harm, but actively to do positive good for others. So let's take Jesus' first example of the better righteousness to see it. Much better, he says, than... No murder. Verse 21 seems pretty straightforward. You've heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. Letter of the law. Avoid murder, friends. That's number six of the Ten Commands. Although then there was the case law in Exodus 21, applying and extending the principle of this command not to murder... Uh, some details may be a little distant from our modern urban setting, but the principles were crystal clear. No manslaughter, no assault. But these are crimes most of us never commit, so we think, oh, easy. I'm a decent law-abiding citizen. Guess I'm okay with God. That's what Aussies say. Do you remember the rich young ruler? He asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Obey the commands no murder, no adultery, no stealing and so on. And the bloke replies, sure, all these I've kept since I was a youth. The righteousness of the Pharisee. Verse 22 makes the seriousness of sin so clear. But I tell you, says Jesus, that anyone who's angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Our parents taught us, sticks and stones may break my bones, but names will never hurt me. And sadly, that can be wrong. Cyberbullying, good example, isn't it? 
kids, the victims, they, they, they fall into anxiety, they, they change schools over it, in the worst cases, even driven to suicide. Another example is domestic violence. Sometimes you hear a perpetrator say, but I never even touched her. Glossing over the impact of abusive words and threats and swearing and humiliation. Well, not me, you say. I've kept these laws. Ah, but what about its spirit, says Jesus. You see, murder is a rare crime, but anger, the attitude which underlies murder, says Jesus, anger is very common. Everyone gets angry several times a week, a day. Calling people names to their face or behind their backs. Swearing in frustration under your breath. It mightn't kill anyone. But in God's eyes, it's sin. Jesus says it breaks the spirit of this command. Anger puts you in danger of judgment and hell. And Jesus says, if you've done your block with someone, you know, you the closed doors of the family home with your kids or your wife, you abused your boss behind his back, you've bagged out your friend in front of others, you've maybe, maybe you sulk and hand out the silent treatment. Uh, they call that passive aggression. It's all no better than being a murderer. You see, such actions and attitudes are symptoms of a desire to be rid of someone, to have them out of your life. Our subconscious is whispering, I wish you were dead. So Jesus shows the true intent of the law is to guide our hard attitude. Thou shalt not murder points to the deeper belief that every single human life is valuable in God's eyes, such that no one, not one person deserves rough treatment with words any more than an assault. And positively, it gives us an impetus towards reconciliation. Verse 22 and three, uh, 23 and 4. Uh, Therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has someone, something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar, first go and be reconciled to them, then come offer your gift. Unresolved conflict, Jesus says, so dangerous, angry heart, so serious that you should even interrupt your religious duty to sort it out. Sometimes you you hear this applied as uh, a reason you you shouldn't take Holy Communion, you you know, if you're out of sorts with someone. Everyone else maybe goes forward and, and you just stay quietly in your seat. But friends, this teaching was delivered when Jesus was way up north in Galilee and the only altar for a Jewish person to offer their gift was 100 plus miles away. It was a week's travel by walking down in the Jerusalem temple. Jesus is using hyperbole to say reconciliation is so important you put your life on hold for two weeks to get it sorted out. That's what love for a brother means. Points, you know, not not foregoing the Lord's Supper as some kind of self-imposed penance if, if you're actually going to do nothing to address the situation. The point is the priority of seeking reconciliation. And, and likewise, I don't think verses 25 and 6 uh, constitute sort of professional legal advice for every kind of dispute situation. That sadly, sometimes people will need to go to court. But it says, but if you... If you might have contributed to a problem, it's better to seek to settle, seek to reconcile. 
Ephesians 4 verses 26 and 7 say, In your anger do not sin. Don't let the sun go down while you're still angry. And don't give the devil a foothold. See, it doesn't really matter whether or not you're right to be angry. Occasionally anger is justified. I'm, I'm angry about the priests who have ended up before the Royal Commission for their abuse. That's, but it doesn't give you the right to lash out physically or, or just to go venting and dumping verbally. Now, our attitude as followers of Jesus is to deal with the cause of our anger, to, to face whatever's provoked you, rather than submerging it and to deal with it as soon as you can. Now, it's interesting here, it's, it's where you've hurt a brother or you owe money and you think, well, it's the other party that's likely to be getting angry and calling your names. Why does Jesus bring up the issue for you? Maybe anger is so serious that you must avoid provoking it in others. But Jesus may even be saying that person who caused the offence is also tempted to get angry. Don't you know how it is when someone accuses you, points out your fault? We, we've always got an excuse. We, we don't naturally like to admit our wrongs. We get so defensive if someone says you slipped up that we, well, we get our backs up and we'll start blaming others. And often that's why things get so far as going to court. Because no one wants to back down. You need to deal with the anger and conflict before it goes that far. So as I draw to conclusion, uh, here are Ken Sandy's seven A's of confession. I've been reminded of these as I've been preparing, um, speaking at the church conference for my last parish, Karajong, uh, next month. The seven A's of confession help us avoid making shallow apologies. Uh, if you don't get them all down, I've actually got a brochure that I can, I'm going to share with you all afterwards if you want it, but number one. Number one A, address everyone involved. You know, if you, if, if, you, if you badmouth a person in front of others, you need to apologise to that person in front of them all as well. Number two, avoid if, but, and maybe. You know, you know in the newspapers they print those conditional apologies. Uh, we we apologise if you're offended which raises the whole issue that they don't really think they did anything wrong or implying that the blame is really mostly on you for being so sensitive. And excuses like, well, look, I shouldn't have shouted at you, but I was tired, just dilutes the value of the apology. Number three, admit specifically. I can see my criticism was inaccurate and I shouldn't have done it in front of others. See, the more detailed you are when confessing sin, the more likely it is to help the other person see you really are facing up to what you've done. Number four, A, acknowledge the hurt. Which shows you understand not, not just what you did was wrong, but how it actually hit the person. I was wrong to criticise you the way I did. It undermined you and, and I can imagine it's dented your confidence. Now, sometimes you might not agree you were wrong on the principal debate, but you can agree the way you said things was hurtful. Well, so be honest about that. Uh, number five, A, accept the consequences. That's, that's part of repentance. 
Uh, like Zacchaeus, pledging to repay four times to the poor anything he cheated them of as a tax collector. There are sometimes consequences you've got to live with. Uh, number six, alter your behaviour. Maybe you can say how you plan to change your actions. For example, in future, if I have criticisms, I'll try and make sure I get the full story first. I'll just talk to you alone. And then number seven, ask for forgiveness. We're going to allow time. You can't pressure someone else into forgiveness. It can't be demanded, only requested as a gift. So you might be saying something like this, I really hope you might forgive me, though I can see why it would be hard. Seven A's of confession. You want to have a better righteousness that outruns the Pharisees? It's more than just avoiding murder. It's dealing with the root cause. Before hateful mind, uh, thoughts even cross your mind, uh, facing differences honestly. Uh, Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers, not just the peacekeepers, trying to keep a lid on things. This week I was in a, I was in a debate uh, about prosperity theology on Facebook and I was pleased because I think actually the quality of the conversation bit of a miracle for Facebook, managed to sort of follow this kind of approach. But I was also convicted uh, of a personal relationship with, with someone I know is upset with me months, months and months later. And, and even though I, I think I did the right thing there, Jesus' words just keep coming back to, to make me want to work out, well, how, how could I have done it differently and, and more helpfully and, and could now, is there some way we could be better reconciled? Basically, the better righteousness that belongs to the kingdom of God begins with dropping excuses, quitting the self-justification that says, I'm a good citizen, I keep the law, I don't do any of those terrible sins. Instead, you admit, well, I get angry like, like anyone else and sometimes I've let fly. And when you drop the excuses, well, you see you have nowhere to run but to Jesus. From our series in Philippians late last year, Philippians chapter 3 verse 9 came back to me this week. I want to be found in Christ, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. Only in Christ will you be free to start living out the better righteousness of the kingdom with all it means. Honesty with yourself and others. Dealing with the anger before your sin and seeking the forgiveness when you fail. Amen.